If you were asked to submit a bid for your city to become a capital of culture, how on earth would you do it? Also, how possible is it to perform two high-powered and demanding roles at the same time? Let's say, primary school head teacher and leader of a city council. Well, we'll find out today. Welcome to Half Hour Mental. Welcome to the last episode of the second series of this audio podcast with me, Ian Cleverdon. Half Hour Mentor is here to help anyone who wishes to further themselves with their personal hobbies and professional development, the focus in this series being on the creative arts. My final guest in this series is none other than Lord Mike Storey. Mike is a life peer in the House of Lords. He's the Liberal Democrat spokesperson on education and is the co-chair of the Party Parliamentary Education, Families and Young People Committee. He's had a full career in teaching, yet alongside that has risen from local councillor to leader of Liverpool City Council, which he did between 1998 and 2005, and became Lord Mayor of Liverpool from 2009 to 2010. One of his many fantastic achievements was spearheading the bid for Liverpool to become a European capital of culture, which it successfully achieved in 2008. This was a major step in the city's transformation and has played a critical part in it being chosen to host the Eurovision Song Contest on behalf of Ukraine this year. You can hear some fascinating stories about the bid in my interview with Mike. So let's have a listen. Mike, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Thank you for having me. I will start with the first question for all my guests is, what was the first job you wanted to do? Well, if we're talking about first job in terms of when you're um, in the sixth form or uh, when you're at uh, college or university, I did a number of jobs to, to make ends meet, including working at a steel works at Shotton to a mental institution in Birkenhead to managing a shop, you know. So I'd like most people, a lot of, you know, jobs to collect some money to afford to <laughs> do various things. Yeah, mainly to earn, earn money and know that that's correct. Stage. Yeah. Was there a particular desire that you had or a dream that you wanted to aim for at that stage? Well, looking back on it, careers advice, which was almost non-existent, you know, in, in those days, you know, it was a sort of a, almost the same today, I guess, that if you got into the sixth form, and I did get into the sixth form, you're expected to go to university. So they just sort of... Um, said, well, there's a cupboard with prospectuses in, go and have a look at them and choose which. There was no sort of, what are you good at? What are you interested in? What are your passions? It was just that sort of, you know, off to university. So um, I hadn't a clue, to be honest. I, At one stage, I thought I would like to be a journalist and I <laughs> took the bold step of going to uh, the North, I think it was called the Northwest News and Sports Agency and uh, was interviewed by this uh, really caring bloke who said, look, you know, I can give you a job here, but you're best finishing your studies. Uh, and went back to school and thought, well, what can I do? Oh, I'll do law. So I applied to uh, universities, got a place at Leeds. But sadly or gladly, I didn't get um, the three A-levels. I just got two. And what was I going to do? And I thought, I want to do, do you know what I'm really interested in? It is the sort of creative, I want to be, I'd like to do some I'd like to be an actor. And uh, said to my father, I'd like to go to drama or theatre theatre school, and to which he famously replied, no son of mine's going to do that. Well, that was a sort of sign of the times, maybe. Yeah. And I just sort of sat around and thought, I've got to do something. So why don't teach you? So I applied to teacher training college. And uh, this was in the, I think this was almost in the August, and got interviewed here at, uh, in, in, in Liverpool as a 
Chief Training College called St Catherine's, which is now Hope University, and had to take another sort of test there, a written test, and uh, was accepted. And uh, the uh, the principal, as he was called in those days, sort of said, well, where are you going to live? And I said, well, I just live across the water in New Brighton. He said, oh, no, 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 you're better. You need to enjoy the college life, so, uh, you, you know, live in and we'll sort that out for you. And uh, I loved it and uh, did teaching practices and started a career of teaching. I've thoroughly enjoyed my teaching career. I think teaching is a bit of, you know, acting and it's a bit of law, actually. You know, it's all those things. So I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time and miss it to some extent. That often comes up when I've spoken to teachers is that it, it, you, you do have a performance that you're doing. You know, you walk on stage uh, when you walk into the classroom. Uh, that's a common comment. That I see. It's just as a, an actor knows how to hopefully engage the audience. Mm. I think the successful teachers, the best teachers, are those who know how to engage their pupils mm. and know the different techniques for doing that. Mm. That's right. What attracted you to the acting aspect of, of what you did, which you took into teaching by the sounds of it? Well, I think you can, we can all as, you know, <laughs> in our senior years, we can all always look back and reflect on if only. And, uh, and I'm not sure that's always a good, a good thing. Um, but I, I can remember as, uh, as, a, as a youngster, my parents were quite keen on the theatre themselves. And uh, we used to, go in New Brighton, there was the Floral Pavilion, which has had a refurbishment a few years ago. And yeah, when I was still, uh, still alive and kicking. Yes, and uh, when I was um, Lord Merville, well, I was invited to one of the, the gala events and it brought back many happy memories. But uh, we would go, there was a, 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 there was a resident sort of show called Melody Inn. And uh, every week, you know, during the summer holidays, I'd be dragged along to Melody Inn and got quite, in, you know, got, it sort of sparked that sort of interest, I think, in theatre generally. Not just the performance, but how something is staged and how something looks. And um, I'm always quite to this day, excited when the curtain goes up, not only to, you know, to see the play, but how they've set it and how it looks and how it feels and how, you know, what the lighting is like and yeah. all the sort of other side of theatre. We often, you know, when we're giving awards for, you know, best actor or best play or best film, we forget actually the thing that makes it are all the, the technicians behind that. Mm, absolutely. So looking at the teaching then, how long did you spend teaching? From the age of whatever it was, 21, was it, right through to my mid-60s. Um, and I was, uh, I taught in a number of schools. Uh, I taught in, my first job was in, uh, in Prescott. I struggled to get a job, probably because I had got involved in sort of student politics and uh, all my friends had got jobs that I hadn't. And come the August, I bumped into uh, one of my education tutors who was called Harry Armstrong. Harry Armstrong was famous for the fact that he did... He was one of the first uh, television educationists. He did uh, science on the television. You might even remember. I remember the name. Harry yeah, Armstrong. And Harry said, hello, Mike, how are you getting on? And I said, well, Harry, I'm not a job. He said, oh, God, I can't have that. He said, look, my, my, my friend, uh, uh, Joe Bonney, is looking for a teacher. Why don't I... Um why don't I sort of get you to meet him? And I met Mr. Bonnie, and <laughs> the side of the times he used to walk around school smoking his pipe, and uh, I got employed by him. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't... Uh, it was my first class. I mean, I actually did a sort of what's called in those days 11 uh, a primary, secondary course, so I wanted to do really teach history at secondary level. But I ended up in a, a primary school, and I was teaching a class of 41 seven and eight-year-olds, mm. and it was absolute, like, 
I can't believe this. And it was what's called an integrated day. So you didn't just teach English. You had these tables doing different activities and the children moved around the different activities. Or was there just you teaching this? Yes. No teaching assistant? No, no teaching assistant, just me. And I can remember the name of virtually all those, those pupils. Obviously, you do your first teaching class. And it was sheer... <laughs> it was sheer hell. And... Uh, Eventually, sort of, probably come the sort of, I don't know, November time, it suddenly all clicked into place and uh, I, I loved it. And I stayed there for five years. Then I went to uh, Halewood to a school called New Hut. Um, and uh, I was there for five years. And then I went to a deputy headship in Whiston called Holsneed. And then the junior, the school was merged with the infants. So I became temporary head teacher of the juniors. And then I went to a full headship in um, Highton, Highton Quarry. I uh, was there for five years. And then I went to my last school, where I had a plantation in Halewood, and was head there for 18 years. So quite a sort of very... But all quite, you know, not completely deprived communities, but communities where there was, you know, there was... You know, people struggled, but lovely people. I mean, I, you know, I, I absolutely I loved every moment of it and still keep in touch with some families and some pupils. And it's... Secondary teachers always have the joy of suddenly knowing what happens to their pupils. Um, primary teachers don't. Uh, and But you sometimes get people contacting you, like, you know, I sort of bumped into one who said, hello, you know, I'm a nuclear... <laughs> A nuclear physicist, and Stuart Humphreys was a nuclear physicist. <laughs> and more recently, I've just had a uh, an email from uh, a former pupil, and I invariably now say, "Oh, you must come to the House of Lords, and I'll show you round." You know, so wow. it's become a sort of. Uh, no, I've, I've loved teaching, and also, of course, the teachers. You mean, I mean, I, you know, teachers sometimes get a bad press, but oh, my goodness, uh, the commitments certainly of my staff and yeah. other schools that I'm, I've known. I just think teachers are undervalued, underpaid, and society needs to realise that the importance of them. Well, as a school governor, I totally echo that uh, as, as well. So I'm, I'm intrigued by the transition then to getting as a, to being, becoming a councillor and obviously becoming leader of uh, mm -hmm. Liverpool City Council. That sounds like that was at similar time to your teaching as well. Uh, well, my f uh, so once I'd got a teaching job, um, I needed somewhere to live. And one of my friends was got a job... Uh, well before me, had uh, organised this house in Anfield, actually opposite Liverpool Football Ground in Granton Avenue. And uh, he said to me, oh, there's a room, a spare room, do you want it? And I said, yes, not realising it was underneath was a dairy, so I was working every morning at half five. Uh, so there were four of us in this house. And one day, the local Liberal knocked at the door and he said, look, um, I'm trying to get um, this road made one way. Would you sign the petition? And I did. And he sorted it out. And I was very impressed with him. And he, I mean, I, my, my, my father had been a local councillor in New Brighton, an independent, and later joined the, the, the Liberal Party in those days. Uh, and Peter Javal was this Liberal activist, had just said, um, could you deliver your street? And I said, yeah, of course. I delivered the, the newsletter in the street and the street became two streets and the two streets became 500 leaflets, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day he said, would you come along to one of our meetings? And I said, OK. Uh, and they sort of persuaded me to be what's called a paper candidate where you are put on the ballot paper, you have no chance of winning, mm. but it gives people the opportunity because we don't have a PR system. It gives the pe people the opportunity to vote for the party they want. So I agreed to that and I was the paper candidate for Clubmore Norris Green, which was completely council housing, 95% council housing, Labour for years. 
And um, I met a couple of other liberals in there and they said, well, let's put out a leaflet. And the one leaflet became two and it became four yeah. leaflets and then we did a bit of canvassing. And lo and behold, I won. And I had to go <laughs> and tell my head teacher, Joe Bonney, <laughs> who I'd t- got agreement, that was just a paper candidate. I said, Mr Bonney, I've been elected. And he went, oh, right. And I said... Um, and what's more, under the local government... I don't know how I said this, I, I must have been, you, you know... Under the local government agreement, I'm entitled for time off during the day for council duties, you know, once a month I'm entitled to half a day, and he sort of said, oh, right. I only discovered years and years afterwards that he actually was a Liberal himself, so maybe right. he was a bit more sympathetic. And um, it was the time when the Liberals won control of the city council in 73, and I became a... Once, after a few years, became chair of education, and thirty-five years later, was you know the rest became history and um, became deputy leader and then then leader. And um, we won in nineteen ninety-eight and was the leader of the council for um, eight years. So, with your role as leader of council, then that that how much of that, if percentage-wise, with your teaching and your being the leader, what was the sort of the percentage time that you you spent? I mean, I've, I'm. you raise a, a quite important issue. I think the trouble with local government is, uh, firstly, the general public don't regard politicians for all sorts of reasons, both locally and nationally. And, you know, one corruption story or one dishonesty gives the impression that they're all like that. But actually, the majority of local councillors and the majority of MPs are incredibly hardworking, in my experience. So I... I Divided my time, I had very supportive school governors and I did two days a week as leader of Liverpool City Council and three days as a head teacher. And I used part of my leader's allowance to appoint a second deputy at my school. And in the council, I had a really good team of, you know, really good staff team, um, a secretary and a casework officer, and they were stunning. And uh, actually, I, I, I reflect that if it wasn't for my two deputies at school and my two staff members in the, the council, I wouldn't have been able to do do the work. And uh, the, 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 my, uh, you know, my family, I'd, I'd always always talk about my secretary in the council who was called Mary Ann, a wonderful American woman who, who actually was a harpist and her husband still plays in the Philharmonic Orchestra. So you can, uh, yes. So I'd always say, Mary Ann, can you help with this? Mary Ann, can you help with that? So, so the children would always shout out, Mary Ann, Mary Ann. And there was um, a wonderful occasion, I'm digressing now because it always amuses me, where... Uh, Liverpool was, you know, had real problems. We inherited major, major problems. But one of them was the amount of litter everywhere. Dirty, you know, dirty city. Uh, uh, Mr Bryson said when he came into Lime Street Station, he looked as though Liverpool was having a festival of litter. And um, I was determined we'd do something about this and was interviewed on Northwest uh, News, on BBC Northwest News, and said, look, if I can't sort out this litter problem, I'm going to step down to leave the council. And they said, right, we'll be back in 12 months' time to see whether that's the case. <laughs> and when I got home, the children were standing outside with plastic bags and litter, throwing it on the ground because they wanted me not to be the councillor anymore. Oh. They missed because I was out as away from home so often. Yeah. And I still remember that occasion. Um, that was your children who were doing it. Well, it was my daughter and my nephew yeah, were doing it, yes, uh, Robert and Rachel. And... <laughs> 
We still laugh about it to this day. Uh, Rachel is, funnily enough, Rachel is now a lawyer herself, is a solicitor herself. So there was something in the in the in the gene pool about uh, law. And needless to say, the BBC came back twelve months later, and I was panicking. Uh, and they got the uh, tidy, tidy Britain group to confirm that Liverpool was, you know, far, far better. So I could stay on. Phew, thank goodness for that, as leader of the council. Oh, great. I mean, I, I worked in Liverpool in the 80s uh, when I started my career and uh, the transformation of the way that it's gone. And particularly it was at the time that you did that, you know, you're looking at the 90s, goes into the 2000s and we see in the buildings now and how it's been transformed. But you're also in absolutely at the key of the European capital of culture, which was in 2008. When did you start planning that? When was the germ of an idea for it? Well, it started on uh, after I'd won the, the May elections. I didn't expect... In 1998? Yes, I didn't expect us to win that year. I thought it would be the following year. Um, and I was doing the BBC uh, results, election night results programme, and uh, suddenly we were winning awards we'd never won before, Speak and Dovecot. And Roger Phillips, the interviewer, the host of the evening, said, uh, look, Mike, you better go, because there'll be people wanting to talk to you from the media. And I left the BBC studios, which was then on Paradise Street, and I was by myself and I walked to where all the, the media were gathered in the municipal buildings. And I thought, what on earth am I going to say? What, what can I say? I'm, you know, and I, I, used, I came up with the phrase, because Liverpool is obviously passionate about um, sport, particularly football, and had two Premier League clubs, still does, mm -hmm. just about. And uh, came up with the phrase, I want Liverpool to be, a, a, you know, a premier European city. And I was going to a conference in Glasgow and uh, we were travelling in the council car and the chief executive was sitting in the front and he was sort of saying, look, I've got some bits of correspondence here, let's go through them while we're driving back to Liverpool. Now, there's this, uh, there's this sort of letter about applying to be a, a European capital culture. We don't want to do that, do we? And at the time, Liverpool had applied under the previous council to do be city of architecture and it had been a bit of an embarrassment to be quite honest mm -hmm. and I think he felt look we've had that embarrassment let's not do that but I thought to myself well if I want to sort of succeed in Liverpool being a premier European city isn't this the way to do it so I said Mr Bounds we certainly do want to do that and sort of reached the letter mm -hmm. and the rest was was history really um we were uh chief executive then uh retired and a fantastic job in stabilising Liverpool and David Henshaw who had been the chief executive Nosley came in and he and I were absolutely determined we'd get on the shortlist for European capital culture and we did everything it took to get on that shortlist. Um, we set up a dedicated team, uh, Granada Television seconded some of the staff to us uh, and everybody was really focused on this. And then we got onto the final shortlist. And it was a proper, I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, we'll give it to this city. The, 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 the judging panel were absolutely ruthless in, in their appraisal. Mm -hmm. And the chair of the, of the panel was Jeremy Isaacs, who'd been the uh, first uh, chief executive of Channel 4 and, uh, and of the Royal Opera House. And they came on the final two-day visit. So there were three cities on the, on the final list, mm -hmm. including Newcastle, the favourites. And we'd heard that um, they'd got a bit fed up of, of being PowerPointed out by PowerPoint presentations. So we said, OK. So when the judges arrived, they got off the coach. There were eight judges. We said, look, 
Liverpool is free. You go where you want to go. Uh, here are some suggestions. And that first night, it was um, it was a real ale pub tour. What's that got to do with culture? I'm not quite sure, but it was that. It was a performance of the Playhouse. It was, you know, a list of things. Um, and, of course, we had all those venues immaculately organised. So yeah, They knew when, very well that they yeah. were on the list to be visited. Yeah. So when they um, went to the uh, Do The Real Ale pub tour, uh, they went to Dr Duncan's, and lo and behold, there was a poet, believe it or not, in the, in the pub <laughs> reciting poetry. And when they went what to the coincidence. next Coincidence. Yes, there was a, a, a ballet dancer actually practising on the bar rail. Um, and it all went incredibly well that first uh, evening. And the next day, they, they were going off on all various visits. But we ended the night at the comedy club at the Albert Dock. Oh. And what had been a spectacular success went horribly, horribly wrong. Because the final act of the night was Nige from Toxteth. And this comedian in shell suit, typical scouse, started saying, we've got effing capital culture judges. And I thought, oh, no, oh, no. And you know in that moment when the sweat drops down the back of your neck, oh, no, this is going to be a disaster. And what do they know about effing culture? The trouble is all the culture we've got is for the effing tourists. <laughs> and Jeremy Isaac looked bemused. Miranda uh, Sawyer smiled. She was uh, a writer on, on, on contemporary music. And I thought, oh, God, we've just lost it. The next, morning, <laughs> the next morning, we meet the judges to set them on the way to visit these places, which they Thinking, could choose. Well, that's it, well, now. And, yeah. I thought, and I said, Jeremy, I'm really sorry about last night. And he said, sorry? He said, when I got up this morning, he said, I had um, a, 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 a message uh, from one of your residents. And he got out the letter, and the, the resident had said... Dear Jeremy, really sorry about last night. I was at the club and this is not how, you know, I mean, you must have been really embarrassed. And Jeremy looked at me and said, but I effing enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and then that night, he, we, we'd found out, just to show how well planned we were, we'd found out that he was a, a Chelsea fan and uh, there was a Chelsea match at some, we organised, uh, unbeknown to him, that he'd go to this pub and watch. It sounds like it was all pub-based, it wasn't, I promise you. Uh, and we just made sure there were a few Chelsea supporters in the pub, pub as well. But no, we... Our bid was, uh, joking apart, I mean, it was about inclusion, it was about turning cities round, it was about making sure that it wasn't just about the city centre. It was some, I mean, some of the projects we did outside the, the big cultural events. And, and one thing that always sticks out in my mind where I just, to this day, think about it, and it was, a, I won't wait, it was an inner city school which no longer exists, so, uh, an 11 to 16 Roman Catholic school, Roman Catholic boys' school. And huge unemployment in the area, truancy in the school. And they got a grant to make a film. And they were given a film uh, producer. And uh, eight of the, of the boys did this project. And uh, the drama teacher at the school was, was, was honestly, was Miss Jones. <laughs> and she was stunning. And they had a, made the film. And they had a, an opening night, red carpet outside the school we went in. And it was life-changing for that, for that school and those boys. And, you know, truancy levels uh, improved dramatically. And of the six, they all got good marks in the GCSEs. And some of them wanted to go on to do A-levels and they didn't do A-levels. And two of them wanted to do A-level drama. Right. And Miss Jones carried on at the school and did A-level drama. Fantastic. So I just think things like that we forget. And we're thinking about, you know, opening ceremonies and fantastic operas and concerts. Yeah. Actually, it's what happens in a grassroots level that's so important. Absolutely. And that goes back to a previous podcast where I interviewed uh, Steve Bennett, who's theatre director at Cambridge University, mm -hmm. who his first job was teaching 
pottery and found that, you know, again, in a school that was, uh, you know, had quite a lot of delinquency, mm. but they found their creative bent, if you like, mm -hmm. just through that. And it's just yeah. finding that extra bit. So when was the bid? When, when was it successful? In what year? Um, the Before? bid, well, the, this was the year before we, we were going to be Capital Culture in 2008. Obviously, it was a planning period. Mm. And part of our bid was to celebrate each year with an event to, to build up our capacity. So we had, you know, we had year of performance. We had year of the sea. We had, you know, we did yeah. all those sort of, we had themed years to build up the capacity to be able to do Capital Culture. Um, and when we actually had the year, the year before had been our 800th birthday. So Liverpool celebrated 800 years in 2007. Mm. And that was the, if you like, the dress rehearsal for the Capital Culture Year. And the figures at the end of it, you know, anybody who sort of says, oh, culture, what does that, that's not real jobs. I mean, they're talking nonsense. I mean, for Liverpool, it was just an amazing, not only an amazing experience, but it changed the city and for good. Um, you know, we, we had languished in terms of, of, of tourists visiting the city and we suddenly shot up to the, into the top three and we're still in a good position tourist-wise. We were languishing in, in people coming to, to shop in the city. We were about 17th and, of course, on the back of Capital Culture, we built Liverpool One and we shot up to in the top three of retail destinations. We built a cruise liner terminal. So, you know, for the first time in many years, Cruise liners were coming up the Mersey. And what's the importance of that? Well, because passengers get off and spend the money in the Absolutely. city. And spending the money creates jobs, et cetera, et cetera. We built the canal across the pier head. We created a science park with the universities. And all those are on the confidence that it gave the city. And I always say that in any situation, in any job, the hallmark of success is that you have confidence in what you do. And Liverpool as a city had lost its way because it's lost its confidence. And not surprisingly, really, with some of the, you know, high-profile events, whether it be, you know, uh, Heisel Stadium, Hillsborough, um, the caricature of Liverpool in the, the television comedy bread, you know, all thieving mm. scousers, which mm. just wasn't the case. And Liverpool felt, you know, nobody loves us. And they became very introspective and looked down. And suddenly... We're capital of culture. We can do anything. And that confidence level soared. And when you're confident, you take risks and you're prepared to do things which you wouldn't normally do. The results, you know, people visit. If you're not from Liverpool and you don't know it, come and have a look because the transformation fantastic city to visit. You've then now, you've moved on to, so your position in the House of Lords, your mm. responsibility for education mm -hmm. and families and young people. And this series is about creative arts as well. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously just explained a lot about your experiences with the capital of culture and your teaching background. Mm -hmm. What do you see perhaps as the opportunities for young people and perhaps even the challenges as well for getting into the likes of creative arts? I think I'd slightly widen that. I mean, I think it's really important that uh, young people don't fall into this sort of trap of thinking that there's only one line of development, i.e. you've got to get your GCSEs and go into the sixth form and go to university. I mean, there are whole different routes of progress and uh, we need an education system, in my mind, that realises that we have to develop pupils and all pupils have different strengths and different skills and, and, and half the pupils in our schools are not academic for starters so why are we ignoring the other other half you know it's it, it it is in a sense easy if you have a real passion 
or a real, you know, a, a real vocation to be a doctor or to be a vet or to be a nurse or to be, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you can focus on that. But the vast majority of young people don't really know what they want to do. And for the point that you said about your father earlier on, thinking, yes. oh, well, that's it's almost like you're wasting your life. Correct. So uh, thank goodness that, that, you know, gone are the days of here's the university prospectus is there is a much better career development in school. So that's the, the starter. And my view is that you should, in a sense, I know this sounds a bit highfalutin, but you should follow your dream. And if you've got a, a dream and a passion, you have to follow that. You can't just think, I can't, I can't do that, I can't succeed at that. Rubbish, you can if you want. Uh, and there are different ways of doing that. Thank goodness our, our education system now is beginning to be, you know, provide different routes. You know, an apprenticeship is often the, the best way. And if you look at creative, creative uh, industries or if, if you look at creative arts... Go and do some work experience. Work experience is a brilliant way to find out whether you like it. You know, going back to my own daughter, she thought she wanted to do law, but she went and did work experience in a law firm and thought, yeah, this is for me. Yeah. Um, and so it I, might not be as well. And it might so not be. Of course, you're yeah. absolutely right. You might come away saying, no, this is not for me. And then when you've done that, then decide, oh, am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to drama school? Am I going to go to theatre school? You know, if I'm a if I'm a, a, a technician in the creative arts, you know, a camera person, a lighting person, you know, set designer, then that's a certain expertise where you do need to go to particular colleges. If you want to be an actor, then I think you have to be realistic about that. Many people who want to be actors will, will have a a career in acting, but they won't reach the great heights that they think maybe they're going to get, maybe disappointed. But you've got to be prepared for that uh, and understand that. And uh, it, it, it's a very tough business. If you're going to be, uh, you know, a musician, then your musical skills will propel you in, into that job. Um, I think my, my advice would be to go, not just to get career advice from school, but if you want to be in the creative arts creative industries check it out with different people and talk it over now often children from disadvantaged backgrounds don't have the networks they need yeah. where you know children from more stable communities if i can use that phrase if it's the right phrase often have a whole network of of people they can go to mm. parents um, or family parents. Oh, people. your daughter can come and to our do work experience our law firm your daughter mm. your daughter or your son can come and do this mm. if you're living in a in a deprived community to find those opportunities is much much harder and i just hope that we can uh, in, you see, i look at parliament and i look at young people who come as as uh, uh, to do work experience or interns i have to say you couldn't do that if you lived on a council estate in Sheffield or Nottingham or Liverpool. How would you afford it? Yeah, you'd um, have to be London-based. You'd have to be London-based or you'd have to have wealthy parents who can pay for it. So, I mean, I managed to persuade the Lib Dems in, in, in Parliament to have a paid, a paid internship at uh, Living Allowance for somebody from a deprived community. And it's been a huge success. You know, the, we've had two young people from, you know, social housing in, in deprived communities who've gone on to great things. We, we've had, uh, you know, people from ethnic backgrounds who've gone on, done a, they do 18 months, have gone on. And uh, the transformation of them is just amazing.
So it's it's not an easy answer. You no. know, there's no there's no particular way. But I think my overall observation is that you need to take advice from people you you know who have some understanding. Yeah, and that's where a lot of schools and universities and just having a wider network and asking around can really help with that. Just give correct. It a go. That, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Mike, that's been really insightful. Uh, thanks ever so much for your time. I've got one final question that I ask all of my guests. So that's knowing what you know now, after all of that experience that you've had, what one piece of advice would you give that younger self? Oh, what I said earlier, follow your dream. It's as simple as that. And uh, do, if that's what you want to do, do whatever it takes to get there and you'll succeed in the end. Mike Story, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. It's just incredible how passion threads through so many of the achievements of my guests, not just in this series on the creative arts, but in every episode to date. I loved hearing about Mike's experiences with the bid for the European Capital of Culture and how he set that 12-month deadline in which he vowed to clean up the litter issue in the city. You can also sense his determination to help young people develop and be successful. Huge thanks go to Mike for taking time out of his busy parliamentary schedule to sit down with me and share his experience for your benefit. However, this isn't the last you've heard from Mike, as I also subjected him to my quick-fire question round, which you can hear the day after this one is released. Stand by for a very interesting story about Joanna Lumley. This is the last of the full episodes in this series. Given that the focus on the creative arts has been so well received, I fully intend to continue the arts theme in Series 3, which will hopefully return in the late summer of this year, 2023. However, before this, I plan to release a series of special episodes over the summer that focus on specific skills such as teaching, developing a career path and fiction writing, all drawn from the fabulous experiences of my guests to date. It's a sort of greatest hits compilation series of episodes, if you like. Make sure you subscribe to the series via podcast platforms and social media if you haven't already, so that you're notified of their release. It'd also be really helpful if you could rate and review the podcasts, whether that be on your preferred listening platform, on social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor, or even by sending me a testimonial via the email address that you can find in the show notes. Do also go back and have a listen to any episodes you've missed. There's a treasure trove of career and personal development experience out there. Thanks very much for listening, and until next time, bye for now. Mm-hmm.